This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, and you may already know which one of us is the murderer, but you'll never prove it. Today we're discussing the new era of TV and film mysteries, ushered in by Ryan Johnson, the writer-director behind the Knives Out films and the new show Poker Face. I'm Mark Linton Meyer, and my alibi is as firm as my glutes. I'm Al Baker, and I know you did something, I just don't know how. <laughs> my name is Sarah Lindbrook, and um, probably the opposite of a human lie detector. <laughs> My name is Lawrence Ware, and I'm black, so that means I probably did it. <laughs> is that the way it worked in 1960s? Okay. Absolutely mysteries? is that the way it worked back in Columbo days, in Murder, She Wrote days. Of course it is. <laughs> hmm. All right. So this was, I think, just something that we had all experienced in some form or other. We ended up pushing this back a week, so we had a little extra time. So I ended up rewatching Glass Onion. I thought it was fr- fresh enough. It just came out this December or so. And I'd seen Knives Out a couple times, once in the theater and then once with my kids since then, and then have just been watching Poker Face as it came out. Thanks to, you know, sort of making this connection, sort of been in the press that it's not an official, Poker Face is not official Columbo reboot. It has the whole lie detector thing that's, well, there was a show called Lie to Me that was sort of used that. But anyway, but she even sounds like Peter Falk. Such yeah, that. She, does. she does. And it is a self-conscious. They even have yeah. the font at the beginning of every episode is identical yeah. ah, yeah, to the to the Columbo font. And that I gave me chills when I first saw it. And I love I love it. I love it every episode. <laughs> I guess I just thought that that was like a Tarantino-esque, you know, I love old media. And so every episode of Poker Face, the credits are gonna look like a 1970s, 1960s film, but maybe it is more specific than that. That's definitely Columbo. Yeah, and wasn't he, it was when he first approached Natasha Leone about it, I think he was saying a modern day Columbo. I think that's how he pitched it to her. And they've got the first episode set, like the, I think the shot where the font first appears is just rolling over this horrible 70s carpet. And it's just the most, yeah, it's the most explicit. Yeah. It is absolutely glorious. It is wonderful. Now, it's wonderful for those of us who grew up with it. Or if you were like me, I didn't grow up with it, but my grandmother used to watch it all the time. It was always on TV. Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, Columbo was always on TV. And so it's very nostalgic for me. I always thought of the Peter Falk character. You know, he was a cop, so he was a detective. He was this blue collar guy in the wrinkled trench coat and everything. And I had forgotten that the settings actually were pretty, I mean, at least from the rewatches that I've had of, of some of the Columbo, the original Columbo episodes, are actually in really posh settings, you know, often they feature mm. rich people. And that's not what Poker Face is. You know, like the casino, I think, is in Laughlin, Nevada. You know, it's not even in Las Vegas or Reno. <laughs> it's in Laughlin, which is which is Laughlin. So I just thought it was interesting. So all of these settings here aren't, you know, she isn't necessarily zeroing in on, you know, it's not like a, a show about class necessarily in, in the same way that Columbo was. The first time that I ever watched a Ryan Johnson film was Brick, that older movie with Joseph JGG. And one of the things I remember about that film was that it was a film that was set in a high school, but it was absolutely a hard-boiled 1940s detective film. And so that's what Ryan Johnson loves to do. He, he loves those old things, but he loves to kind of mix it up, give his own spin on it. And so that's exactly what he's doing with this particular show. Like he's really doing a Columbo show, but he's doing his version of it. So of course, 
It's not an old man. It's a young woman, youngish woman. She's always seemed like she's 50. Probably when she was a teenager, she's talked like she was 50. <laughs> she probably, she, she absolutely did. I mean, because I remember her on Orange was the New Black, and she was always like just like a grumpy old woman, even though she was quite young. But he's doing his own spin on that classic idea, that classic detective kind of show. Yeah, because we had this little extra time, actually. I mean, the first time Ryan Johnson, of course, came to my consciousness, came to probably most of our consciousness, is because he dared to do a creative rewrite on a Star Wars movie, <laughs> a creative writing take that a lot of people objected to. I just liked the fact that it was creative, but I had not seen A Brick or The Brothers Bloom. So I watched both of those this week to sort of like, I knew about Looper, but I didn't know that was his movie. I loved Looper too. I don't feel like his directing style is so unique or, you know, he's a good director. He'll sh like shoot people's feet. He'll shoot lots of people in a room talking in interesting ways. But it's sort of a, I don't know if having a discussion of like what his unique style is, as opposed to Tarantino or many other Scorsese or many other people, you know, but he just has a great pop sensibility with this genre tweaking that he's been talking about. I, I heard an interview with him of him saying, like a genre is like a, a code. And so people sort of know they have the code book and they know what you're supposed to do. And then they know when you're breaking that. And so it's just a great shorthand way of communicating with the audience. And just throughout, you know, all of his movies are just really well paced and entertaining. And so let's just give that well cast, give that to him in advance, unless somebody disagrees. Or is it his writing that sets him apart? It's definitely his writing. It's, it's yeah, is writing. it the way that he structures story and plays within those genres and makes them his own? It isn't necessarily the way things are shot, even though all of his movies and his TV shows have been produced very well, but it's not necessarily as distinctive as someone else's. But I think it's in his writing. That's what makes him stand out. There's a lot of really interesting character work. It feels like, I don't know many of his older movies, but it feels like he's really loath to ever let a character go remotely underdeveloped. There's depth like in every character that's on screen. Yeah, I was kind of surprised in watching Glass Onion again that some of the characters that are supposed to be comedic and over the top, but that like, yes, they still, even like, you know, somebody such and such as assistant or whatever, like will be as sketched out as they could be in the time that you could reasonably fit. And the camera lets the actor do what they're supposed to do. Like I was watching the scene with Anna Darmus and she's giving the old guy the poison by accident. And her face, like he knows enough to linger on her face and watch the going from the pure just joy and fun and the everyday conversation that they're having. You know, I think she says like, let's do drugs or something. And they're just joking around and watching that scene go from kind of light and fun to she thinking that she just killed someone that she loves was just brilliant. You know, in a genre film, you don't really get that as much as you think. You feel like he must be an absolute joy to work with for an actor because there's some serious talent that seems to be queuing around the block to be in anything that he's doing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Including just little bit parts, you know, in Glass Onion, I was, you know, the number of people brought in Angela Lansbury, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You know, that was just a particular scene I think the whole thing was shot. Yeah, it was shot in was shot. I couldn't in believe Yo-Yo Ma was in that film. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So great. But just even in Poker Face, all of those guest parts are fantastic. I mean, not every single one of them is a home run. But actually, and I wanted to ask you, did any of you, what were your favorite guest spots in Poker Face? Does anybody have some favorite performances? 
I think I actually squealed when I saw Ron Perlman crop up in the last in the last <laughs> yeah. episode. But, but yeah. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name, but Chloe Savini mm-hmm. was yeah. absolutely spectacular. That whole episode. So the episode based around murder in a, a touring rock band or like an aging rock band who are like past it and desperate to find a, a new hit and then they kill for one. And it's just, so I used to play music. It really, hit, it really hit home for me, but she was just spectacular. The guy who played the ladies man on Saturday Night Live, what is his name? I can't remember his name. He got a chance to really act, like genuinely act and it was really good to see. And then, oh, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Stephanie Hsu. Yeah, Sue, yes. yeah. She was really good. She was and she was very surprising to see. Uh, of course, she was cast well before she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but it was great to see her. She was doing good work. It was very interesting, her character. I mean, to be honest, the show is populated with a lot of great character actors. John Rassenberger from Cheers, like that he looks like that yeah. now. <laughs> like, And he should have been... I don't know if he's what his career has been. I know he's done some questionable political things. And he's, you know, a conservative or whatever. But the fact that he should have been playing these old man roles, you know, the Charles Durning roles or whatever for years. And this is the first one of these I've seen him in this age bracket at all. Yeah, he's got Toy Story and Cheers money. So there he you probably go. is doing okay. <laughs> yeah, he probably doesn't need to work. Him. Oh, Benjamin Bratt. He did a really good job. I really enjoyed he's seeing him. He's so great. Yeah, I love and him. He looks, Even when he's he on the screen great. for like, Oh, he he's always looked great. He's aged he's, well. He's easy on the eyes. He's he's been he's been moisturizing. He looks this, <laughs> he looks so. wonderful. Well, he's he's somebody that I never necessarily really liked as a leading romantic lead or whatever. But like as a thug, yeah, I thought he was great. Oh, I mean, I would say a character actor. I mean, uh-huh. I, I wouldn't call him just a thug. He's he's good in character roles. He's really sure. good. Now, I agree with you. He's not great in leading roles. I didn't love him in leading roles. But as a character actor, he's really good. So we have to figure out how much of these, you know, we're not going to spoil the mystery. I think that the approach that we should take is not necessarily talking about like each mystery. And and, like the mysteries are not that interesting. What's interesting is the format. Like that's Mm -hmm. what's interesting to me about the show. Let's talk about the role that mystery plays in all of these stories, because I think it's super interesting. Certainly in, in Knives Out and in Poker Face, I don't know what was going on in Glass Onion. Glass Onion seems like a bit of a blip, but certainly in Knives Out and Poker Face, like the key part of the format is that a basic element of murder mystery, a murder mystery suspense is just taken off the table in the first 10 minutes of like each of those things. So like, I can't lie and I'm the one who did it. And, and I'm always going to be able to see whenever anybody else is lying. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about these shows is I just think that's super interesting. Like, I love it when writers set themselves that kind of challenge. Like, I'm going to create a murder mystery, but no one's allowed to lie. Or, like, the mystery can't hinge on a lie. Like, what does everyone think about, like, how they manage that, how creative it is? Because Lawrence is right, because a lot of the mysteries, maybe because of that, wind up not being as interesting as they can be. So the show has to find other ways to be interesting, which it does. But strictly speaking about the way that mysteries work in these in these stories... Can I present that this is a subversion already of the Agatha Christie thing, which the Agatha Christie's are, are more directly. And we had an Agatha Christie episode with three fourths of this conversation on it last year. So already, you know, saying it's going to have the element of that, right? What's great about an Agatha Christie mystery is that somebody developed a really elaborate way to not get caught. And yet we then as the audience and then the detective are supposed to be able to ferret out, see through that. You know, and all these have that element, but it's just like, let's present it, at least in the poker face stuff and the Columbo stuff, let's just present that trick up front 
So you can say, oh, that's kind of interesting, but like not that interesting. You know, the pilot of Columbo I watched was, which Steven Spielberg directed amazingly, but was like, I'm going to kill my friend, but I'm first going to take him somewhere and make him lie to his wife about where he is. Like, okay, that's not super Agatha Christie worthy, (laughs) but it's enough that then there's like a thing that you can undo later. And so having the mystery be, you know, you could even know who did it. And maybe, you know, from the first minute, just because of how this character looks and the fact that like, he's the sneaky husband who has all the motive in the world to kill his wife or whatever it is, but you have to actually connect the dots with the evidence that that should be, you know, it has to be publicly verifiable and working that out as a thing, you know, has always been a pretty essential part of mysteries and is here as well. Even though in poker face, she's not allowed to ever like talk to the police and show them the evidence. It has to be something that everyone can see. That's a really good point. <laughs> what I like about with Columbo and Poker Face, they're both how catchems instead of whodunits, you know? So we know immediately what happened and who the guilty party is. But what's nice about Charlie having that kind of superpower of being able to tell when people are lying means that she isn't the one who's smarter than everybody else. They have to up their game in order to make it as hard for her to figure out who did it, even though we as the audience already know, and also how to prove it as possible, which I think is a really interesting, I mean, like you said, a challenge. It's also, it gives a very specific sandbox for Ryan Johnson to kind of play in. No, I think you're right. One of the things that I really enjoy about Poker Face is that it's a mystery show that really hasn't been done in 15, 20, 30 years, right? So we are very accustomed to how do we figure out, because I, I read a lot of mysteries. I read like Walter Mosley, Raymond Chandler, like, you know, all those guys, you know, Dashiell Hammett. And those are typically like operating in, in the context of you're trying to figure out who is the person who did it. Well, one thing that we haven't had in a very long time, and Sarah has already commented upon this, is that this show is centered on, we know who did it in the first 10 minutes. And Al has already said that. Like, we know at the beginning who did it. Now, the question is, what mistakes did they make? What is going on? Like, so there was that one episode about the two women in that nursing home, I think it was. (gasps) That was so great. It was a good episode. so good. Yeah. And we learned interesting things about the characters as we were going through the show, like that's what makes the show interesting that as you go through, you learn about the characters, you learn what makes them tick. You will learn to make them quirky. Like with the JGG episode, we saw at the beginning, he had this mundane life. He had this thing on his ankle, but we didn't really know what was up with that guy. Right. And then we (laughs) learned. Bad tipper. Yeah, something was going He was a terrible <laughs> tipper, right? But something was up with that dude. We didn't know what it was, but something was up with that dude. And then we learned what was up with him. And we learned that he's actually kind of worse than what we thought at the beginning. Like, that's what I love. Like, I love the character work. I love the depth and the care that Ryan Johnson brings to these kinds of, like, stories. It's wonderful. Yeah, there's a reason why he gets such good talent to work with him. Because they want to work with him. Because they realize that when I sign on to work with this guy, I'm not going to be given a, you know, half-written character. I'm going to be given a character with a full backstory. And it's a very interesting character. To my mind, not even necessarily a how-to-catch-em story. It's why you get the how right away. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember a lot of the stories where the big kind of dramatic moment was like finding out 
is like collaring the culprit. The big dramatic moments are always mm-hmm. like someone confronting somebody else about the reasoning or the motivation or right. like yeah, right. revealing something about a, a backstory point. That's what makes the story so compelling. In fact, I can't even remember clearly most of the actual mystery plots in, in any of the Poker Face episodes. I remember the characters. Mm-hmm. And that was also the case in Columbo. I remember, so I haven't seen Columbo in a long time. I watched it an awful lot as a child. And one of the things I remember being aware of how much I liked about it was what made the stories interesting didn't hinge on who done it because that was often usually revealed like right at the beginning. But I do remember this endless parade of fantastically despicable, like small businessmen who were always trying to screw <laughs> over their partners or who were like had drunk wives who hated them or anything, all that kind of stuff. Well, that determined which I watched this time was like, oh, William Shatner is one. Dick Van Dyke <laughs> is going to be a murderer. That's cool. Yeah, it's fun to see, you know, some of these people that are, you know, usually play nice guys really get to kind of twirl their mustache. What made Columbo stand out from like Murder, She Wrote or Matlock or Perry Mason was just the character work. Like the characters were always so much better with Columbo. That's what makes that that show really stand out and really why it it ran for so long. It was a long time. It ran for such a long time. I heard an interview with Peter Falk on the radio in the 90s and he was like, yeah, I'm still making it. Why would I stop? <laughs> it's a steady check, man. Steady check. Yeah. I guess I was not aware of that. And the ones on Peacock only go through the 70s. He okay. was kind of bullshitting a little bit. But I mean, but you're right. It was a long time. Okay. It was in the 90s. Yeah. And he did say he was still making it. I don't know if it was like regular or one off sort. Or maybe he was just lying to the radio presenter. I don't know. All right. Yes. Regularly from 71 to 78. After it canceled, it was revived on ABC between 89 and 2000. Three in several new seasons and made for TV movie specials. Whoa, whoa! It's a that is a long running show. Wow! How old was Peter Falk when he did his last episode? He was like one hundred and three. He was one hundred and three doing the episode. I didn't know it was such a current property that I should have watched a two thousand three Columbo episode. I remember the seventies episodes. I don't know. I remember. Well, I remember seventies and eighties. Maybe a little 90s. I don't know if I watched it in 2000. I don't think I was in college, like, cranking out the, you know, the Columbo episodes. Actually, I wanted to talk about how Poker Face modernizes Columbo. I really wanted to pick up on something you said right at the beginning, Sarah Lynn, which I think might melt nicely into that. Okay, So cool, let's cool, talk cool. about, because you made the point about class, which I thought was super interesting. And you said that Columbo was about class in a way that Poker Face isn't. I think you're dead wrong about that, but in a super interesting oh, good, way. Good, good. Wow. Okay, because tell me, tell me. it seems to me like it's really deliberate that Natasha Leone, her character, like every single place she goes and runs to, she's always in the most casualized possible form of like employment and is the most kind of ignorable class of person that's available in that situation. And like all of the characters that she directly interacts with are similarly precarious. And that feels like it informs so much of the show because everyone, like no one has any roots anywhere. No one is particularly beholden to anybody else that they kind of interact with and everybody is disposable. And that seems super important to me. That seems like a a central theme of the show. Oh, absolutely. So I think they're both about class, but about different. Poker Face is more explicitly about class, I think. And and I'm really interested to know why in old shows like Columbo and all of these old murder mysteries, why is everyone always so fantastically wealthy? Is it just so they can shoot the whole episode in one location because someone's got a massive house? I have no idea. I've definitely noticed that. 
Like I remember even the old, old mysteries, like people were always wearing suits and dressed to the nines. It was never just like regular people in regular But it's because we love seeing people in power get taken down. And I think that's actually where, because I do think they're both about class. I just think that they tackle the subject differently. You know, as much as we all love Columbo, it was a little bit one note in that way. And I think that Ryan Johnson is doing something that's a little bit more subtle or at least more nuanced. And so one thing about the Charlie character is that because she is as you said, Al, kind of an invisible role, people will talk to her. She's somebody that is so approachable and people will tell her things that they wouldn't tell somebody else who would be seen as someone who's more powerful than someone like her. Yeah, I can see just entitlement has more forms now, that it's not just the wealthy that feel entitled. It's everybody that is, you know, feeling victimized. The sort of the way that will to power asserts itself in today's society is so much more spread out. And so you could have like, well, is the established rock band that has fallen out of favor? They're not like wealthy. That's part of the point, but they're definitely, it's not fair the way things have gone down with our previous hit and that we're in this position and we deserve more. And so who is this person who wrote a fabulous song? Where do they come off stepping ahead of us in the social line? And I'll put that to rest. And so it seems like there's a number of the villains that are in, we used to be great actors, the Tim Meadows one, but now whatever, we, I need to do something to reassert myself. And you know, outside of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I can't think of a villain who I didn't like, like, like even, oh. Adrian Brody was so sympathetic, wasn't well, maybe, he? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, he was a little bit of a jerk. And also his father was a little bit of a jerk. Oh, no, I wasn't even saying it was a joke. I thought it was surprisingly sympathetic. Oh, so oh you're, you're not sarcastic. Oh, okay, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. everyone, you understood why they made the decisions that they did. Now, you, you didn't like them. They made bad decisions. It's, it's never good to kill someone, usually. I mean, anyway. But what if they have the lottery <laughs> ticket that would get you out of town? It's never good to kill somebody. But all the people who did the killing, you like, you at least understood why they did it, why they made the decisions that he did. And oftentimes it came off not as villains, but as anti-heroes, maybe? Is that the word? So, I mean, I think it was because some of it was not just about what's in it for me, but there was also an emotional need that they had to, that was relatable. So like my least favorite episode, I think, was the car racing one for some reason, which was disappointing because I wanted, to, I was so I looking forward to Tim episode. Blake Nelson. I love that episode. Oh, did you really? I loved that episode, but keep on going. It's all right. But it's like the kid, you know, and the daughter didn't, actually, we're not doing any giveaways here, but the kid who was behind the crime was, I thought, pretty unlikable, except there was an emotional need there that he didn't have. There was something about like, he was next in line for that position. He was a striver. And that's something like, how many times have you been in the position of, you know, hey, that person is hanging on to something that maybe should let go of? I've thought about with murders, how often is it really that only that one person were out of the way, all my dreams could come true? Like, it seems like most of the time, no, it wouldn't really help. I'm next in line on the wait list to get into this school. I'll just find somebody who's been admitted to murder and I'll get it. Like, no, this does not happen realistically and it would never be worth the trouble. However, that's us objectively <laughs> looking at the situation saying that it wouldn't work. But when you're in that situation and you feel that way, 
you probably think there's this one person who's holding up everything for me. And if this person was eliminated, Lawrence sympathizes with murderers. That's what I'm going to put. <laughs> Coming up next. <laughs> Is it just murder because we've gotten to the habit of writing murder mysteries? So it has to be a murder. Why are there not other kinds of crimes that they ever explore? In these well, kinds like, of shows? Well, like you hobble somebody? I Encyclopedia mean, Brown sort of crimes. Like we don't want somebody murdered. They stole the diamond or whatever. Like, just get really sick, and you can't go to your job interview. Like Sherlock Holmes, right? you got theft, blackmail, extortion. In the books, but in the movies and TV shows, it was always murder. I think murder is more interesting. It's just more exciting. It is. Yeah. It's the highest stakes. That's what you want. It's because, the highest like, stakes. If you had a TV show about somebody stealing a diamond, who, who gives a fuck? Nobody cares. Well, yeah, and you might want to just sympathize with the, you know, Catch Me If You Can or Lupin or, what you know, one of these shows about okay, the Okay, so time out. Okay, thief. time out, time out, time out, time out. I've never watched Catch Me If You Can. Is that good? Yes, so. yes, good. Should I watch it? Is, is this like something that I need to watch? Is it really good? No, but it's good. Wait, yeah. Okay, so is it good or is it not good? Like you're saying it's good. I'm just saying it's not like the first episode of Star Wars or something. You're like you can still be part okay, of the society. Okay, the first episode of Star Wars is really, is really not that great. It's part. It's the second episode that's really good. Keep going though. The talented Mr. Ripley, I remember coming out at exactly more or less exactly the same time as Catch Me If You Can and being infinitely better. So if you've seen the talented, Mr. I have Ripley, seen that one. Yeah, I've seen that. It's just like it's a blind spot for me. Like, and like Luke. I haven't seen that either. Do I need to watch that? Is that a good one? Is that a good mystery? It's okay. It's pretty good. You guys are not selling this shit. I ain't watching this bullshit. Like, you guys are not selling it. Like, you're not, like, convincing me. There's only so many hours in the day, Lawrence. And I have plenty of time to watch things that I think I should watch, but you guys are not telling me to watch it. I want to stop here and tell you about some other podcasts. Have you ever seen a movie based on a novel and thought the movie was better or read a story and thought, I can't wait to see this movie? Book versus Movie is a podcast devoted to films adapted from books, short stories, magazine articles, songs, you name it. If it was made into a movie, the Margos will do the research and find out which they like better, the book or the movie. Yes, both the hosts are named Margo. Past episodes include Silence of the Lambs, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Spy Who Loved Me, The Poseidon Adventure, and there are currently over 125 episodes to choose from. Find a book versus movie that is book VS period movie wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I also want to tell you about another pop culture show that isn't afraid to get nerdy. Check out the chart-topping podcast called The History of Literature from our friends at the Podglomerate. Each week on the History of Literature, host Jack Wilson and his guests dive deep into the history of literature, covering everything and everyone from A to Z, and by that I mean Atwood to Zhivago, of course. So, for instance, if you're into mysteries, as we've been talking about here, of course they have an episode on Agatha Christie. If you are a fan of philosophy, as many of our listeners here are, you can look at their episodes on Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, philosophical writers like Melville and Kafka, and Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Needless to say, the History of Literature is a great podcast companion to Pretty Much Pop, so don't miss a beat. Follow the History of Literature on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this show. Let me turn our attention to the particular writing technique of now we're going to go back in time and show you more of this story, because that seems like the one thing that just makes everything super cool, even if it's like The Sixth Sense, where you have a quick montage at the end and like, now everything's new in perspective when you go see the movie again. You know, that we have in these films to a greater or lesser degree and definitely in Poker Face where it's like, oh, you didn't realize that the character was just off screen. Our hero that you haven't seen for the first half hour of the show was just off screen the whole time. It's not half hour. It's 15 minutes. Sometimes it was pretty damn long. (laughs) The dinner theater episode, it was like she I think she showed up in the last half hour of the (laughs) the thing. It was amazing. It's just cool to do that. 
if you can do it well, if you can successfully do it well, and it makes people want to go back and rewatch what they just watched. I think it's hard cool. to do that. It is hard. As well, it, but it, like, especially when you're denying yourself the ability to use the main character that the audience already knows as a way into the story, and instead what you make yourself do is just basically write a whole ass movie for the first hour of the episode. And it's cold open it's, after cold open after cold open, and it's really hard to make that compelling. Really hard yeah, to do Yeah, but it did make us so engaged, you know, so for the first third or half, like we were so engaged, already locked in, looking for clues, guessing the way that Charlie might show up and what her involvement would be. So we were super locked in, like right from the get-go. And then that just made the second half or two thirds even sweeter because it was either, we were usually wrong, but, you know, sometimes if we were right, we got that little dopamine hit. Yeah, but we were always trying to guess, what's Charlie's job going to be this week? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. She had a lot of jobs. Like She, she had she a lot was, of jobs. She was working that Indeed profile. No, she wasn't on the internet, remember? Oh, the that's Hong right. Chow that's right. At character. How the, hell, uh, how the hell do you get a job if you're not on the internet? You like, just show up and you're nice. That seems yeah. to be like, oh, we need another dishwasher. I don't dishwasher. have a social security number. H- hang on. You don't, have good, you don't get very good jobs. No. No, you don't. The solution, Al, to your problem is of not having the character that everyone knows and loves to have in the first half is time travel. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, I had to look up. That was the one where, okay, let's rerun you know, a third of the movie with the characters. Oh, you didn't know they were just off screen causing things all the time. By far so, the best movie in the Harry Potter franchise. With that doubt, best director too. Look it up, guys. That's also a Doctor Who move. I mean, it's actually a Bill and Ted move. It is a Bill and Ted move. <laughs> Bill and Ted did it wonderfully. Like one of the best movies to do that. It was really, really good. But I guess there's something about a time travel movie, at least you as the watcher are moving along with the characters, even though you're seeing things twice because they traveled back in time. Whereas the way Brian Johnson or anybody else is going to do it, Ran, isn't that a famous Japanese movie that's like they run through the same thing with multiple perspectives. So, I mean, that's a great technique, but then you have to have... It'd be interesting enough, you know, I'm thinking about even what's going on in Star Wars media or, you know, let's do prequels and things that were happening in between, construct our universe asynchronously. It's a great idea in that, you know, if I'm writing a story and I introduce a character, I always want to kind of give their entire backstory right then. (laughs) But no, you have to wait. And so a lot of shows, they'll do that like, well, let's have flashbacks later. When we introduce this character, you won't necessarily know anything about that. But we'll be able to make up and fill in the characterization through the stuff because any given event or character is is much more dense than you could present in a single scene. So like completely, if it's warranted by the plot or whatever to make it interesting enough to go back and like see what the different characters were doing while this was going on or whatever, like just seems great. The way they did it in Knives Out especially is so clever because whenever they had flashbacks to the party and the death of the murder they didn't just show more information. They reshot the entire scene and reblocked all the characters so that the character who was doing the recollections in each of their flashbacks was the focus of the scene. Every single time they show you what happened that night, everything is reconfigured around the perspective of the person who's telling the story at that moment. And it's intensely clever. Our next episode, we're going to talk about the Rocky movies and the Rocky movies at the beginning of every movie, they show like 10 minutes of the previous movie because you haven't been to the theater in a while. But I kind of wanted them to like, don't just re-show me the same thing. 
do a different edit of it, do it from a different perspective. You're Re- asking for re- a lot in the 80s, man. Like, okay. That's, 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 you're asking for a lot. There. But that's They managed what- to do that with the new Karate Kids, right? They just, they had all this extra footage that they were able to use. And so they weren't showing the exact footage that we've all seen for the last 30 or 40 years. They were able to take some stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor and reuse it. I remember all the good times with my spouse or what, whatever it is. If you're going to just show the things from the past seasons, I understand that's the point, but that's not actually the things they would remember the way they would remember it. Like, so having some work go into the re-perspectivize it. Now that we can de-age everybody like hell, now we'll just do that all over the place. But that's sort of what's so brilliant with what Ryan Johnson does with flashback is that it's rooted in the point of view of the character, which we know is going to be unreliable. It's not going to be the truth with a capital T. And that is really interesting. So it gives us more information about the character. It's something that pushes the plot forward. So we're continuing the story. So it's something that's necessary. He doesn't use backstory just so that we learn about more about this person's childhood or whatever, or what they ate for dinner the other night. It's something that actually is pushing the story forward. And it's giving us as the audience just another perspective on one whole story, if that makes sense. And it is great for character development. I mean, just like you said, Lawrence, like he's so great with character. And to learn something more about how someone sees the world is character. I was trying to remember, they did have a few things in Poker Face where they would flash back to her childhood, right? With her mom. Or am I making this up? <laughs> this is not a different show I'm thinking of. With her sister? Or am I just thinking of, I'm just confusing too many things. They finally got to Better Call Saul and they were showing like the main woman in that, you know, flashbacks to her childhood. <laughs> just, yes, there was one with her sister, but there's not like her mom picking her up at school and doing a scam. That's some other show <laughs> I'm thinking of. <laughs> oh, no, you're thinking of, um, oh, yes. yeah, Better Call Saul, okay. Better Call Saul. That was Kim Wexler. <laughs> you're getting old, Mark. You're watching too much Which was necessary information. <laughs> I mean, there's probably something we could say about that in terms of if he's playing on nostalgia. I, I just heard him in an interview saying, you know, when he went into Knives Out and things that he really liked those Agatha Christie, like, you know, Evil Under the Sun. And that's a movie that I watched for our Agatha Christie episode last year. And then watching Glass Onion with that in mind, like, man, that's really quite similar in its overall feel that these are all kind of repulsive characters running around in a tropical area and you're giving them all reasons for the audience to hate them and for them to hate each other. So pretty direct. But does that help? Is it a repeat and an update of that just because that's a good formula? Or is the fact that you have seen the past thing supposed to deepen it and make you get it more? I feel like the appeal of Ryan is a really good question. And I think there's probably lots of good thoughts available on this, but I feel like Ryan Johnson's take on nostalgia has to do with luxuriating in it. So it seems like exactly that point you just made, Mark, what's distinctive about Glass Onion is it does that Agatha Christie thing of just drawing out exactly why everybody is despicable. And that's the way that the audience has fun with the mystery. In Glass Onion, it really takes its time over it. It seems like the entire story is is dedicated to exploring how vile each of these people are. Reminding me a lot of White Lotus, the same reason what makes Ryan Johnson nostalgia so distinctive. The same thing that we were talking about earlier with like how on the nose all of the 70s visual references were in Poker Face is it just really just lets the audience understand that that's exactly what he's focused on. 
Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel like Stranger Things feels like a direct copy of stuff from late 70s, early 80s. But I do think it's an amalgam of Steven Spielberg, of Stephen King, of all of that stuff. Like it has the same vibe, whereas I don't think Ryan Johnson stuff, it's more of a nod than it is a direct copy. And it doesn't seem meta. It seems like he is just, he's modernizing it. He's making something that we've seen over and over and over again, completely his own. And I like Stranger Things, but I'm not sure that, I don't think that they're doing the same thing that Ryan Johnson is. They're not, but I think that they're really in love with those 80s films and TV shows, more films. And they're really paying homage to those films, like in a very faithful fanboy kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that's not copying. They love it. They're paying homage to it, but they're not copying but it. My phrasing wasn't quite right. To answer my question, though, in both these cases, you don't have to have experienced the earlier thing to appreciate it quite a lot. Like that most of the Stranger Things fans are young people that never saw the thing and aren't going to watch the thing or Poltergeist or what, you know, maybe this will be their route into it. But it's just these nods if you're familiar. And I think that's totally the same with Brian Johnson is that for the most part, and here's the, the exception is I felt like when I started watching Poker Face of just a couple episodes in, I felt like he actually pulled some of the pacing issues from the 70s such that I was like, why is this quite as long as it is? Like, why is it taking so long to get there? And frankly, those Columbo, I would have watched more of them, but like, they're so slow. They put me to sleep. They literally are seem formulated. <laughs> and the way that he did music, you know, Ryan Johnson, you know, the modern filmmaking way is just so much more subtle in the way music is introduced. Because in a Columbo episode, it's either there's no music and it's just dead silence <laughs> with talking or maybe even just walking upstairs for five minutes straight. And then it's this glaring, like, like cheesy soap <laughs> opera, 60s music. And there's just so many more options seemingly now with the invention of the synthesizer or whatever the right. tool is. Um, and, and what you're talking about there is bringing me up to my criticism. All right. So here's the thing. I love Ryan Johnson. I love the storytelling. I love what he's doing with the form. It's really, really great, all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing, and maybe I'm alone in this, but with Glass Onion and with Poker Face, it has some pacing issues with me. Like, it's really laborious. It's really taking its time. It's really luxuriating in the form and in the characters and in the, the setting. And sometimes it puts me to sleep, like literally puts me to sleep. Um, like Glass Onion literally put me to sleep. I had to finish it the next day. Poker Face, there are a couple of episodes that literally put me to sleep and I had to finish them the next day. Now, they're good and I enjoy it, but man, it really takes its time in some places. And I don't know if that is a feature or a bug. Like, I don't know if that is just, it comes along with those kind of stories and you just have to like let it develop and let it kind of cook. Or if maybe he could have sped it up a little bit and made it a little bit more lean, more propulsive. I'm not sure. I'm going to let you guys tell me what you think on that. I think that's fair. I think especially with Glass Onion. Glass Onion is maybe my least favorite of the things that the Knives Out of Us mysteries. And I think the reason is that it's just the satire, I think, isn't quite interesting enough to sustain the depth that the story needs to pull out of the, the characters. And I think maybe there's a similar problem going on in some of the Poker Face episodes where like the characters are great, but they're maybe not 
quite interesting enough to sustain the amount of screen time that needs to be dedicated to their character development. That was what I didn't like about the race car driving episode. I thought like the key character tensions just weren't juicy enough to maintain my interest for the whole thing. But you're also partly right, Lawrence, in that I think that kind of pace just comes along with these kinds of stories. And I was always going into like a Poker Face episode, happy to just be along for a leisurely ride. Yeah, I was too. That was actually... For me, definitely a feature of the show, mostly because I knew that it was going to be over in an hour. Like I wasn't setting myself up for an eight or a 10 or a 13 run story where I was like, oh, you know, just wait until episode six, then it really gets good. You know, <laughs> I knew that this was the pacing of this particular story and it was going to be done and I was going to know what the ending was within 60 minutes. So that was fine for me. Regarding Glass Onion, I did not think that I needed to see that again, but I thoroughly enjoyed it, especially the first half. I still fundamentally do not believe that these six people would have been great friends as young people. Like, no, some of them are just too stupid and like these, these would not be pals in any circumstances. They're all narcissists. Like, how do they all get along together? Because they're all narcissists. I think there's a a, little, a tiny bit of deliberate satire with that, because you, you're right, Martin, that do seem like they would be unlikely to be friends. But I think we as mere mortals, maybe he's making a point that like the audience or the mere mortals who just watch, who consume all this media or like, you know, ordinary people would probably be surprised at who hangs out with who in like Hollywood and in famous town. Early in his career, the films that Ryan Johnson made were leaner, Right. They still had the depth. They still had the interesting characterizations, but they were leaner. They were like 90 minutes, maximum 100 minutes, right? He's getting longer. Star Wars movie was long. Knives Out, long. Glass Onion, really fucking long. And so I'm wondering, is he becoming a little too self-indulgent? Like, is he having too many characters that are too interesting and now we have to spend more time with these characters so he can show us just how clever he is? Like, this is just a question. I'm not saying he's wrong. Sarah Lynn, don't give me that look. I don't, I, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just asking a question here. Is he getting self-indulgent here? He could very easily be one of those filmmakers who the quality of his movies is inversely related to the amount of money he has to spend on them. Yeah. Because, yeah, I didn't like his Star Wars movies because it seemed like there was just, for a lot of reasons, but one of the problems... No, wait, 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 wait. Don't do that, Al. Ryan Johnson do not could, be that guy. do anything that don't he wants. Don't be that guy. Don't be the guy. I like you this episode, I'm, I'm, this, this, this episode of the podcast. Don't let you start like disliking you. I liked what he did with Star Wars, man. <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't have pitchforks about it or anything. I just didn't, didn't care for him. Why? Why? Wait, wait, why? Why did you care for him? I'm interested. Are you going to try and make me remember what I think about The Last Jedi now? <laughs> <laughs> One of the impressions that I came away with was like, no, when there's enough money that the director can do anything that like them, they have to be really disciplined on their own account. And that's really hard to do. And it seems like Knives Out was like Ryan Johnson, an amount of money to spend. Clearly, they had Jamie Lee Curtis money, so, you know, it was great. But it was a tight story, and it seemed like he was, like, there wasn't any flab on, on that movie at all. But in Glass Onion, there absolutely was. And in Poker Face, it's getting starting to get a bit more self-indulgent as well. So maybe something that he makes needs to flop so he can go back to a, a more modest budget. Just for the record, for my Googling fingers have revealed Brick, an hour and 50 minutes Looper, an hour and 59 minutes. Brothers Bloom, an hour and 54 minutes. So yes, Knives Out and Glass Onion are over two hours by 10 or 20 minutes. 
but they've always been pretty long. That's yeah. But he he felt, never told maybe, an eighty-nine minute story. Maybe it just maybe it just it <laughs> felt tighter. It just felt tighter. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what it was. It felt tighter. More content. Yes. Any final thoughts? Any recommendations or something? You know, we didn't really get into the fact that Ryan Johnson's movies, like these, are pretty funny. Like in a way that I don't feel like the source Agatha Christie stuff or. Columbo, like, is... Agatha Christie, God, no. Agatha Christie was the opposite of funny. Like, she was dead-ass serious. I mean, some of those movies, like Evil Under the Sun, like, they had some wacky characters, you know, so it was a little funny, but it's not... Like, these are kind of close to the Pink Panther sort of over-the-top, maybe not, like, Murder by Death or Clue or the show Bored to Death, but, like, there are some elements. If they weren't funny, I wouldn't like them that much. I don't know what else there is to say about that other than it does not detract from what makes like Clue not a good mystery movie is because it's so silly that you cannot actually have stakes that you care about. I mean, this is a separate topic that we could do in the future sometime, but like, what is the pinnacle of dramedy or something such that, okay, you're interested in these plot connections, you're interested in these characters, but it can still have funny jokes in it, as opposed to being a Monty Python movie, which is is all of those make you laugh really hard movies. For me, I crap out at about an hour 15. They're like, I can't physically laugh. Like you have to introduce some dramatic elements or I'm going to see it more as a series of sketches than as an actual narrative. Well, there has to be at least one character that the audience can align with. You know, it's like you have to have your Anna Armas character in there that you are completely on board with. You have to have the Janelle Monet character. You have to have a character that you are absolutely aligned with. Otherwise, because these other characters are like cartoon characters in lots of ways, even though Ryan Johnson does a really good job of making them more three-dimensional. I don't know about you, but I, I was not aligned with Kate Hudson or Jamie Lee Curtis. Or <laughs> What you're pointing out here is that you have to have one character that's an outsider, because that's what those characters are. Like, so Janelle Monae, she's an outsider. Like, you think she's an insider, but she's actually an outsider. Anna de Armas, is that her name? Maybe it's Anna. Anna de Armas? Anyway, she's an outsider. The key to these stories is you have a collection of people that are all insiders. They know each other. They're inside the circle, all that kind of stuff. But then you have one or two outsiders who are on the outside looking in. And those are usually the perspective characters that we tell the story through. And so you get those elements together. You have a good show film. The only thing that I would warn Ryan Johnson, who's listening to this podcast. Hi, Ryan. Make sure that you don't become (laughs) too self-indulgent. Like, make sure you don't do that. Get a little a little leaner. Because that can be the downfall of a great filmmaker, right? You got to have some discipline, as my man Al has already pointed out. And Ryan, I'm concerned that you just seem to be Googling your name and listening to everything that mentions you. I mean, what what would bring you to listen to this podcast? Come now. Don't be you're, so self-indulgent. <laughs> there you you're go. better than this, Ryan. <laughs> but you asked about, about recommendations. I mean, I'll just drop a few. So really where I go to are the old noir films. So things like the Maltese Falcon. Watch that if you haven't watched it. Sunset Boulevard. My favorite double indemnity. Like watch those kind of films if you really want to see. Now, of course, those are black and white. Those are old. But I'm telling you, those movies, those are thriving, propulsive, really good, lean, mean movies. Love those movies. So if you're looking for something that is kind of in this vein, a little bit older, that's where you want to go. Also, The Third Man. That's really good, too. I see a noir episode sometime in our future when a neo-noir comes out. It seems like all the noirs I can think of right now 
are sci-fi noirs that the, the new ones that have come out recently. Oh my gosh, man! You got to watch the, what, what, the old stuff. Yes, in terms of what would bring this to public consciousness the right stuff now, that comes out now. How about uh, a fucking podcast about it? That will bring it to public consciousness. <laughs> like they're not going to drop a new noir that's like black and white. Like just do the episode because it's good. I don't know, man. Dead men don't wear plaid. If you. I'm just saying, you could, at any given point in history, I'm, yes, yeah, that's not true, a true. great. You could you could drop your say. I'm a I'm a noir fan, and I'm going to put one out. Al, any any other recommendations or related thoughts to wrap us up on? Yeah, only because it's a bit of a British treasure, and I don't know if if many uh, American listeners will have heard of it. But I'm going to shout out Jonathan Creek as an interesting murder mystery series. Definitely the first two series after the rest of that it kind of loses its way a bit but it is a a 90s british kind of funny murder mystery show about a magician a stage magician or someone who designs stage magic tricks who solves murders and mysteries and obviously it's all there's always some like incredibly intricate system used to cause somebody's death and he can figure it out because he designs illusions for a living materialin any final i always return to anything hitchcock i think not necessarily and strictly mystery, but I love anything that sort of straddles the line between mystery and thriller and just sort of leaves the audience kind of off balance. Hey, Sarah, what's your, what's your favorite mystery book? Like, give me a good book recommendation if I wanted to read one. One of the more recent hits was like Gone Girl and... Oh, that's boring. Give me an old one. Come on. You might as well give me Dan Brown. Come on, man. Give me a good one. Give me an old one. <laughs> I don't think that's the same. <laughs> All right. If you're going to insult me, Lawrence. <laughs> I'm not insulting you. Kind of. Umberto Eco, The Name of the Rose. <laughs> there you go. I hated Sorry, that book. Sir. I hated that book. No, I didn't like that. That was a very Wait, nice did pretentious you, did, mystery. Did you guys like that? I didn't like I, that. That was terrible. You guys like that book? I enjoyed that just fine. Really? Oh, okay. I guess I'm I'm too lowbrow. Sorry, guys. I just read like Raymond Chandler and shit. I didn't, I don't read that. Sarah's mad at me. I'm sorry, Sarah. I'll, I'm mad at you. I'll send I am you, mad I'll at send you. you roses to apologize. Anthology shows are big again now. Why has nobody remade or why has nobody rebooted Alfred Hitchcock Presents? That's a good question. That's a really good question. I used to love that show. I think all of them are on Hulu, actually. Well, a lot of them are on Hulu. Yeah, I loved that show. They try to do something slight. So the... the um. Maybe they will now. Yeah, the Twilight Zone reboot, they tried to... They try to do something like kind of similar to that with the Twilight Zone thing. But yeah, man, that would be a great reboot. That was a great show. But he's not presenting them. He's not around to present it anymore. Yeah, that is a fake. Just get thought. a fat guy. That's all you, just get a fat guy. Just say. Hey. Poker Face is basically Ryan Johnson presents. It is. He doesn't have the kind of charisma to get on camera and do that, though. Alfred Hitchcock, strangely charismatic on camera. Really good. Yeah, there are enough shows that have people introducing them. Wasn't that a thing in like the young Indiana Jones that they got a a really old Indiana Jones with like scars and one of his eyes poked out or something narrating the young Indiana Jones? I don't, this is all secondhand. Don't know nothing about what you're talking about. I don't know nothing about that. Remember that time. They should have aged aged CGI Peter Falk. Uh, <laughs> Isn't he dead? He's dead, right? Yeah, that's why I said dead. CGI. Peter. Yeah, that's why CGI. <laughs> no one's ever really gone as uh, Ryan Johnson knows all too well. All right, well, we're, thank we're you. We're going downhill. To, to I, I, I'm a all of you. She's for, mad at her. Hanging out. <laughs> all uh, right, I'm over it. I'm over it. Folks who uh, subscribe at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. 
get to hear the stuff that we talked about before we started the episode and our behind the scenes of the making of our trailer. So there you go. And it's good. It's really good. You'll enjoy it. So subscribe. Good stuff. So clever. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.